Welcome to another episode of the Vinya Nordic Podcast. My name is Jon, and the Vinya Nordic Podcast is the best way to stay up to date with the latest news and inspiring stories relating to how God is at work in the Vinya Nordic community. The only thing that you and I will get out of our lives one day when we breathe our last breath and we die and we go to be with the Lord, the person that we will have become in that moment is the person that you will be in eternity, that you take with you into eternity. So the question is, who are you becoming? What kind of person are you becoming? Who do you actually want to become and be on the day when you breathe your last breath on earth? As you probably have realized and heard, we have had a couple of episodes this season with international friends of us in the Vinyar Nordic family. And I think it has been such a blessing to hear their stories and wisdom and how that can inspire us here. Today, I'm very happy to have another friend and guest from overseas, which is Alexander Venter. Alexander is a well-experienced church leader, theologian, communicator, and church planter from South Africa. And Alexander lives in Johannesburg together with his wife, Jill, with whom he has two adult children. Among many things, Alexander has written a series of books under the theme Doing. Doing church, doing reconciliation, doing healing, and doing spirituality. And today, you will hear him share a bit more about spiritual formation and reconciliation. And I really loved our talk. This was so inspiring and full of wisdom and and learning. So please join us today and have a good listen. Okay, very welcome to this episode. I'm happy to have my friend Alexander Venter all the way from South Africa here today. So nice to have you here. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much, John, for inviting me to be part of this and lovely to talk to everyone in the Nordic region. (laughs) Yeah, you're actually the second international guest from South Africa this season. We have had a season with some more international focus with the guests that we have had. And we actually had Dave Child here. I think it will be two episodes ago from Cape Town. So, so nice to have you here. And I also know that you, when this episode is released, you will just have been at our Vineyard Nordic Summit in Copenhagen. And I know many people here in the Vineyard, they know you and have, you know, connections with you and other people in South Africa. So that's why it's even, you know, a blessing to to have you in the podcast as well today. Thank Um, you. I'm honored and privileged to be with you. Yeah, that's good. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing in life at the moment. Okay, so I'm married to Jillian. We have two adult children. One is married in Oslo and has a grandchild. For us, their child, grandchild, our daughter's in New Zealand. And so that's a bit about my personal life. I came to faith in Jesus at the age of 13, way back in 1968. And then I became a pastor with the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal denomination. I became a pastor in 1975, a young church planter, pastor. Then I met Lonnie Frisbee in 1979, and through him I met John Wimber in 1980. And then I left the Assemblies of God and joined the vineyard. I worked with John Wimber in 1982 for eight months in a kind of internship, and then came back and together with two colleagues of mine, we planted the Vineyard Church in Johannesburg in October 1982. And basically, I've been a vineyard pastor ever since then. 
And my wife and I handed over the last church that we planted and pastored three years ago. We handed it over to a younger leader because I've been feeling for quite a while I want to slow down and be free from the responsibility of being senior pastor, team leader. And my days of planting and pastoring churches is over. And I want to make myself available to the broader church as a consultant, teacher, equipper, and focus on writing and developing more equipping materials. And also our passion is to lead spiritual retreats and spiritual formation. So that's what we have been doing the last three years. Oh, sounds really good. You said you have been a church planter for many years. What would you say are the three most important reasons to plant churches? So, John, I would say the first most important reason for planting churches is the Great Commission of Jesus, where he told his followers to go to all the nations, the word nations, ethnia, to people of every ethnic type and ethnic group, to the ends of the earth with the gospel of the kingdom and make disciples of Jesus. So Mm -hmm. that for me is the most important reason. The second important reason is that, and here I'm quoting John Wimber, is that he said, the best way to evangelize, and we're all called to evangelize, to win people for Jesus. The best way to evangelize is to plant a church. And the best way to plant a church is to evangelize. So evangelism, in terms of planting churches and to grow churches from the bottom up with new believers, new Mm. followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then also, I'd say the third reason for planting a church is that there is such desperate need out there for authentic community and belonging. The invisible presence and power of Jesus in his church is what transforms us. And people don't know how much they desperately need that. And the best way to do it is to plant churches and grow communities of faith from the bottom up, new Mm. kingdom communities that people find home, find meaning, find purpose, find the answer to life and undergo healing and transformation. There's no other place that's more powerful for that to happen than in the church of Jesus Christ. Mm, thank you so much. Really good points there. What would you say is your definition of leadership? Okay, leadership is to go out before other people as a model example of where you are going, where God has called you to go, and where people see in you not only an example of the way of life, but where you're going and how you're going there and join with you to go there. So leadership for me initiates by God around a future direction through a way of living and modeling life and ministry that is attractive to people and draws them. And in drawing them, they follow and you equip them Mm. in the way of Jesus. Mm. Thank you. And what would be your best advice to a 20 and a 40-year-old person? I would say to a 20-year-old person that there is nothing better that they can do in life than to develop a clear vision and therefore a passion to of who Jesus is and to follow him and to become like him. I think the issue here at 20 years old is what is your passion for life. At 40 years old, I think things have shifted in the sense that now you are maturer and you're beginning to approach the halfway mark 
And I would say to a 40-year-old, my advice would be, is you need to consider what legacy you will end up leaving and what mark you will make in life in terms of your pursuit of Jesus and your becoming like Jesus. Because the second half of your life is more about significance than about success. It's more about living for eternal values whereby you leave a legacy for your and future generations than about achievement and becoming well-known and being successful in life. Mm. That's the advice I would give for a, to a 40-year-old. Sounds really wise. Thank you so much. <laughs> to move on and to get to know you a little bit more, and we nor- normally have this part in the episodes where we ask the guests to share some stories from your own life that have shaped who you are today and like what were those turning points that made those change and how has that like affected you today? So please feel free to share a few stories from your life. Yeah, look, obviously the most defining story of my whole life is when I came to faith in Jesus of Nazareth and became his follower on the 7th of June, 1968, when I was 13 years old. That for me, I had a born again experience that was day and night. And my life changed my sense of consciousness and worldview and beliefs changed and progressively were transformed. Then I'd say another dramatic experience that was life-defining was when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I had a Pentecostal friend at school who laid hands on me, and I was filled with the Spirit in spoken tongues. And I, the exhilaration of the overwhelming joy and power of the Holy Spirit on me and speaking in tongues, strange languages I'd never, ever dreamt about. And out of that came confidence and faith to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus and to prophesy and to pray for sick people and to cast out demons. That for me, I can point to as a, as a real turning point. And then after that, I had a calling experience that also equally was life-defining. So it was on the 11th of November, 1970. At that stage, I was 15 years old. One morning in my quiet time, I'd been reading through the book of Isaiah and I came to a particular chapter where I felt just, it came alive for me and I felt God speaking to me through Isaiah. And clearly I felt God was calling me to speak to the nations in his name, to teach his word, be his servant and speak to the nations and go to the nations. And then after that at school, whenever anyone said, Alexander, when you leave school, what are you going to do? What are you going to become? What are you going to study at university? (laughs) I only had one answer always to the school teachers and my friends. I'm going to become a preacher and teacher of God's word. I'm Mm. going to the nations. (laughs) Mm. And I think that's very interesting to hear. And also, I mean, being 15 and having that sense that, you know, God was calling you, speaking to you. I mean, we might have some young listeners and I just actually now came back from our youth winter camp we have here in the Nordic and we spoke about, you know, hearing the voice of God and, you know, like how can God speak to us? And we actually, you know, there's many ways God can speak to us, but we, the most foundational thing is to read the Bible, I would say. And it's a thing that has been very, maybe forgetting this time. I mean, we don't really maybe not speak about it as much as we should maybe 
And there might not be as top of mind in people's minds to actually read the Bible and believe that God can speak to us through old scriptures in a way. How would you say that, you know, God spoke to you at that age through the Bible? They're very good questions, uh, John. The person that led me to Christ was actually a Baptist minister. And he said to me in 1968, when I was born again, that I must read the Bible every day. He actually said right then, he said, read three chapters of the Bible every day, and in one year, you will have read through the whole Bible. And pray before you read the Bible and after you read the Bible. Before you read the Bible, pray that God would speak to you and tell you some things through what you read. And then afterwards, pray for your friends and your family. So I believed him, and I I took it religiously. (laughs) I used to, every day, in a disciplined way, read the Bible and listen to God in and through the Bible. And often I used to find that just something grabbed my attention, and then I'd write it in my journal, a little book. So I have on my shelf behind me, right at the top there, I've got 13 books, exercise books that are full with my journaling that go right back to my teenage years of what God said to me through the scriptures. So it's just a way of living and a way of feeding, as Jesus said, that human beings will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. And just, I love the word of God. And to read and to think and meditate and talk to God about it and then to write down the two or three things God has said to you in your time with the Lord. And then to live by that. It's feeding, it's eating and growing. So so that's really what I would encourage all the young people, especially young people, to do. Maybe, John, to add one other thing is that this minister also said to me, I should memorize one verse that out of my daily reading that I write on a card and take it with me into the day and memorize it. So I got into Bible memorization as a teenager. Mm. And I used to then memorize right through to my high school years at the end of schooling, large sections of scripture, whole songs. And that has been such an amazing discipline that has become a blessing that has been in me. The word becomes flesh, literally my thinking, my feeling, the health of my body, and it comes out of my mouth when I least expect it, because the Holy Spirit brings it to mind. So our relationship with God in and through His Word and His Spirit is absolutely key, that we experience it daily, Mm. and it transforms us progressively. Mm -mm. Thank you so much. Really, really good. I mean, advice and just, yeah. For all of us to have in our life to do, I mean, just the routine of, you know, starting the day, listening to God has been, I mean, a life changer for me last couple of years when I started to do it more, you know, more intentional. And I can just imagine like your, you know, reading, having that reading plan to that and, you know, really having these questions. I mean, sometimes actually nowadays we might speak a lot about not doing things to, you know, what you say, ritual wise or what you say, but I think we need to bring back that. I need, I think it's wise to bring back some of those things because nowadays we are too afraid of having routines. It's more, it's too much free and too much spontaneous. I think 
we need that as well, but we also need some practices to follow, I think. So thank you so much for that. What, what would be another story from your life to share? So I would say that meeting Lonnie Frisbee and John Wimber was really transformative and in the sense of discovering the theology of the kingdom and the practice of the kingdom through healing signs and wonders. And so although I was a Pentecostal preacher, pastor, prophesying, speaking in tongues, and I used to cast out demons, just meeting Wimber and the way he articulated the kingdom, and then I began to study kingdom theology and the way it was practiced in a very gentle, compassionate, sensitive way of laying of hands as opposed to what I had been used to and what I was practicing <laughs> as a Pentecostal pastor. It was very hyped and powerful and intense, and you mm. raised your voice when I used to preach. I used to preach. I used to preach in a suit with a collar and tie in those days. And the, I had this subconscious belief, the louder I preached, the more the anointing was upon me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was very intense, whereas it was such a different model of ministry. That was liberating for me mm. with uh, joining the vineyard and discovering a kingdom way of practicing the ministry of Jesus that was down to earth, accessible to every believer it was not about the man of God and the celebrity and everything happening on the platform by the man of God. Not all hyped and intense and loud, but sensitive, personal, compassionate, waiting on the Holy Spirit, listening to God, working with God in this mystery of releasing the power of the kingdom into people's bodies and their minds and their, and their emotions. Mm. It just was, for me, a transformative experience. And then I'd say... Probably one more is that meeting Dallas Willard in 1985, I first met Dallas Willard, and he said something to me that was just, again, life transforming. In fact, it wasn't to me personally. He came to South Africa. So Dallas Willard, for those who don't know him, is a Californian who worked in California in philosophy was the head of the Department of Philosophy as a Christian evangelical and became one of the leading evangelical philosophic thinkers in our world, in our generation. And God has used them widely in the evangelical charismatic church to restore classic spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines and practices to the evangelical Western church. And he said, at a pastor's retreat in 1985 on his first visit to South Africa, and I went to the pastor's retreat, he said, the only thing that you and I will get out of our lives one day when we breathe our last breath and we die and we go to be with the Lord, when everything then is stripped away and mm. we stand before the Lord, <laughs> the person that we will have become in that moment when we die after our long journey on earth, is the person that you will be in eternity, that you take with you into eternity. Mm. So the question is, who are you becoming? What so kind of person are you becoming? Mm. Who do you actually want to become and be on the day when you breathe your last breath on earth? And that just hit me like a stone mm. in my forehead, like David's stone, hit the Goliath, and I just thought, oh, Lord, I must consciously 
intentionally make my life pursuit to become more and more like Jesus, Mm. that the person I become, that I will then be through eternity, Mm. hopefully is what becomes my life project Mm. to become like Jesus. So that equally, the whole thing of spiritual formation then really took a hold of me at a very deep level. And it became a very intentional journey in my own personal life and in the congregations that I planted and pastored is discipleship and spiritual formation towards Christ likeness. Mm-hmm. And perhaps one, one last story. Is it okay if I do one more yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, of course. Go ahead. So the other story that's been really Im- important and transformative is that ever since oh. I was a young boy, from my earliest memories, I couldn't speak properly. I stuttered. In fact, I stuttered very badly. And as I grew up and went through school, it was agony for me in school, in class, when the teacher used to ask questions and the students had to answer. And my worst fear was if the teacher asked me a question because really I stuttered extremely badly. And then, you know, in class you had the show and tell and I was teased a lot initially when I was younger. So that was with me all the way through. And then as a teenager, when I became a follower of Jesus, I had prayer, healing prayer. I also, my parents sent me to speech therapy to control my breathing and my tongue and whatever, whatever. But then eventually in my 20s, I actually became a pastor with the Assemblies of God stuttering. And my, I, if I think back on my early sermons into my early 20s, I, I realized God had great mercy on the people who used to sit and listen to me because uh, my sermons were not easy to follow. But what happened is this, is one day in my mid-twenties, in fact, it was an an encounter with John Wimber where he said to me that my outward struggle was actually caused by an inward anxiety or fear of rejection. And he actually broke the power of rejection over me. So when I went home after my time in California and I began to talk to my parents about my early my birth and my early childhood. And I understood from my father that he told me a story of what he thought was behind my stuttering. And then I began to just speak healing over my body, break the power of fear and the trauma that I experienced as a young boy at three years old, where he told me the story. In fact, I relived the trauma by inviting Jesus into it and went through it and asked Jesus to take away the angst. And slowly but surely, over a couple of months, stuttering lost its power over me. Oh, and all wow. The tension, all the tension in my mouth, whenever I was with new people or different people, whenever I stood up to preach, that I could immediately have feel tension. And you know, when you're speaking in your mind, you see words coming up. Mm, mm. And I used to jump to alternative words because I knew words that began with a D and an F I'd stutter on. So I'd... I was like a, in English, you call it a thesaurus, where you jump to other synonyms Mm. or the same word. Mm. But in any case, God healed me from stuttering. Wow. Over a a period of, like I'd say, five or six months, it just Mm. left me. And the joy and the freedom of choosing any word I want to and saying it without the tension. Look, sometimes when I'm stressed out and I'm really tired, I find that there's a tension that comes back and I can get hooked. Mm -hmm. But that 
subjectively, emotionally, I know God heals anxiety, fear, trauma, rejection that presents itself outwardly through symptoms in different ways. And one of my symptoms was this angst, this hysteria of not being able to talk properly. Mm. And it just got worse because of my fear of people, my fear of talking publicly. And yet God called me to be a preacher mm. at the age of 15. And I knew that I knew I would preach and teach God's word to the nations. Mm. So it's a major miracle that has been transformative for me. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. And and interesting to see, I mean, as you said, like how to see that outward things could have to do with inward, what do you say, hindrance or or stuff like that. And, yeah, and, inward and, causes. Yeah, and actually be bold enough to speak that out and, and pray for that. I, I think it's something to to be inspired by, I think, in a way. Yeah. So, so just to finish that point, John, yeah. I've always used the Nordic image of the iceberg, although I've, ne- I've never lived there. But what you see above the surface when a person stutters mm. or there's different issues, complexes, underneath is 80% of what you can see above the surface. And what's underneath, the 80% is the cause of what's... And if you want to address what you can see, you've got to speak to what you cannot see, mm. that it's beneath it. And, and that often doesn't happen in healing ministry. Yeah, you mean like we often speak of what we see, but not of what we not see. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. And one of the things that I know you about since before, you know, around the topic of spiritual formation, and that's really been something that you've been living out in your life. And I mean, we can see in the current times we are living in, I mean, I see and hear from a lot of people in my generation and the generations younger than me, the need, you know, to slow down. Many people are overworked. They are dealing with anxiety and not enough time to do what they really need. And we also see, especially in the area where I live in Sweden, the interest in a way and searching for better and healthier rhythms in, in life. You know, the interest of new spirituality, new age, and everything is growing a lot. And I would say that what we see in this is that people are in many cases desperate for, you know, both meaning and stillness in life. And as Christian in Sweden, and the context I have grown up is, it has always been about, you know, doing things for God, like the more activities and the more church outreach or whatever missions, trips we do, the better life we have and the more fruitful church we have, etc. And I mean, of course, this is important, but I have never or almost never been taught or discipled in the disciplines, you know, Sabbath, rest, soaking in front of God. And to take time off from, you know, the world, what we say to just be still. And I think in my life, it was just until recently, maybe a year or two ago, that I actually did start my own journey of of exploring, you know, what are the good rhythms for my life and to find from the life of Jesus and the first disciples. And I mean, since then, I, I read and listened to a lot of things around this and of course read the Bible and found much rest and, you know, time to be energized in life, but through just, you know, taking pauses and also to play. It's not just to play and, you know, do things. And, but I also see, you know, on the other hand, I also see that I sometimes feel that today that people sometimes can use the need of rest 
as an excuse, if you understand what I mean, to actually do things and to actually live out the kingdom action that we also are called to do. I can see sometimes maybe not the rest that people are taking is actually rest with God. It's more like just doing nothing or watching Netflix and they say, oh, I'm so overworked, so I need to, you know, watch Netflix or be on my phone. But what they don't realize is that it's even more impressions (laughs) when you use that to rest uh, in a way. So a little bit what I wanted to speak about now and through this open up a conversation about is like, how would you say that it means to live on the full scale of both kingdom action, but also on kingdom peace? So how do we both live a life of action, but also live in peace, a life in peace? What what would you say? Okay. Look, John, that is obviously a big subject. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a very, very important topic. So once again, just interrupt me when you need to. But for me, it has to do with being and doing. Our sense of being as people and then our, and our doing and living and behaving and engaging out in life. And what often happens is what we do in life defines our being. So we call, you know, we use, you know, we say, who are you? Rather, when we meet people, we don't say, who are you? When we meet people, we say, what do you do? And when a person says, I'm a doctor, your mind goes, ooh, a doctor. And when a person says, no, I'm unemployed at the moment, you think, oh, unemployed. And so we evaluate people by their doing and people Mm. often get their identity through their achievements and their doing in life. Mm. And even we have titles to it. But the sense of being is what the Bible is about, out of which our doing flows. So in the Bible, our sense of being who we are is more important and is prior to our sense of doing. That in the Bible, my doing must come out of my being and that I don't get my identity out of what I do. I get my identity out of who I am in God because God loves me as I am and I belong to him. Therefore, I am. Mm -hmm. And that cultivation of our sense of being will then naturally easily lead to our doing in life, our activism, our engagement. And then our engagement has deeper meaning and the spirit of the Lord is more present and powerful because it's a natural outflow of growing health, formation, and being. So in other languages, in other language from the Catholics, they talk about engagement and withdrawal or the contemplative state of being and the activist state of doing. So we all should be activists in the kingdom, (laughs) engaged in the world in our daily work, being father and mother and uh, whatever we're doing in life. But it should really come out of this contemplative state of being with God, in God, and through God. Mm. And that cultivation is the priority out of which this comes. Mm. So we have to really learn to live the unhurried life. Mm. We have to learn to really slow down and not be hurried and and rushed by deadlines, pressure, expectations, performance, work, job, boss, 
you know, money, mm. et cetera, but to carve out space and time and then a rhythm of life that we work out that you referred to that really acknowledges I only am who I am to the degree I really know and experience God's love and find my life in God, my life that is hidden in God, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and live in and from that in all my doing in the world. And then it's more paced. It's more, I live a led life. I live a life that's more led by God than life that lives me, life that drives me through deadlines, etc. And then also, obviously, it's not only, you know, driven by performance and what we have to do to put bread on the table and to make life work and to keep the family happy, etc. But it is also escape patterns in us whereby we avoid the work of formation on our sense of being because it is easier just to keep going and be driven by adrenaline and then because our brokenness, our unresolved internal brokenness finds all these escape mechanisms. Mm. So people become workaholics, mm. but deep inside they believe if they achieve a certain point, then they arrived. So mm. I must become a doctor. I must become wealthy. I must be ca- live in this suburb. I must have a better car. And that's the wrong way around, obviously. So the unresolved brokenness of escaping into unhealthy patterns to rest, like you said, just wasting lots of time on your phone, wasting lots of time in other practices that actually are false substitutes for genuine rest and renewal Mm. that is transformative. Those other ones actually are substitutes that are just fake. Obviously, we look at the news. Obviously, we use our devices to communicate. Obviously, we can see some video clips. One mustn't be legalistic about it. Mm. But we have so many escape patterns into alcohol, into procrastination, into all escape mechanisms. Avoiding the hard work of the heart work Mm. to work on our hearts and Mm. cultivate our hearts as a garden for the Lord. This cultivation of lifelong intimacy of being, and you learn to slow down. You learn to become a quieter, quieter human being. And once again, in the words of Thomas Merton, whom I've read a lot and learned a lot from, you know, Dallas Willard helped to recover the practice of solitude and silence for the Western Evangelical Church. But in the Catholic Orthodox Church and through the monastic movement, the heritage of solitude and silence has always been there. Mm -hmm. And we've avoided it as Protestant evangelicals and thrown it out because it's religious, it's ritual, and it's performance to earn salvation. It's all about prejudice against that. But Thomas Merton writes a lot about what he calls echoing silence. Simply, the older we grow, chronologically and years, and the longer we walk with Jesus spiritually in our development, the more you realize that actually, I don't need to say everything I always used to say. I need to speak far less. I need to become much more a listener and a learner. 
I think I know a lot, but the older I grow, the more I realize the little I know. Mm. And then I need to become a listener, learner, quieter, a waiter, and a contemplative. Mm. And in the monastic movement, in the history of Christian spirituality, to be a contemplative, the essence of contemplation is silence. The essence of being a contemplative is to develop a contemplative consciousness where you're more conscious of God and His presence in you and to you and through you into the world around you than you're conscious even of yourself or you're conscious of what people think of you or you're conscious of even other people. Contemplative consciousness is this growth into a state of being that Jesus actually embodied and modeled for us where he says in John chapter 5, he says, although I am the Son of God, I do nothing on my own initiative. Mm. Only what I see my Father doing, that's Mm. what I do. Mm. Only what I hear my Father saying, that's what I speak. And Jesus, especially in John's gospel, John describes Jesus' relationship with the Father where he says, I and the Father are one. The Father's in me. I'm in the Father, and my thoughts actually are His thoughts. My words are actually His words. My doing are His doing, Mm. His his words, because it comes from this deep fountain of being in the Father and the Father in me, which Jesus cultivated intentionally in His spiritual formation as a young boy growing up in Nazareth, all the way through His 30 hidden years in Nazareth, where He was hidden for 30 years, before public ministry. So that even at the age of 12 years old, Jesus as a young boy was so conscious of God that he said, I must be now about my father's business. My whole life now is to actually do what the father is doing. He's my coach. I'm being apprenticed to him and I'm living life in union with him. You can hear, John, I'm getting excited. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, mean, it's so much uh, wisdom in this, but I also think, you know, the what you say to really draw back and to have in a way real rest how do we come into that place i mean as you say the world around us is you know telling us everything and you know we should be this and we should do that we should buy that and we should spend time and money on those things you know how do we just start a journey toward you know as you said rest and yeah and peace in a way (laughs) in our lives in in our daily lives because i mean it could be, I mean, even those taking rest, you know, go on a retreat or whatever, those can be tasks as well as we only do because it's a good thing to do. But that's not the point either, I guess. I mean, yeah. it's about how do we actually form our lives with rest? And that is just one part of everything else. We don't do it to achieve another goal, <laughs> but we do it, as you yeah. say, it's where we start our lives and our thinking from. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I would say, Practically, to get practical now, how do we start it? Is we first of all have to see a vision in our minds of how Jesus lived the unhurried life and he lived from rest, in rest, and he lived in that place of intimacy with God. And then Jesus says that if you're stressed out by living in Sweden and the postmodern life, <laughs> the adrenaline driven life, come to me and I'll give you rest. And mm. that's a gift. I'm quoting Matthew 11, 28. But then he says, but then I give you a gift initially as a gift. Then take my yoke upon you and you will find rest. 
and you will learn and learn of me because I'm gentle. And then you will learn to find rest, live in rest, and live from rest. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what Jesus meant by that coming under the yoke, it was a known rabbinical phrase in those days, to come under the yoke of Torah teaching and Torah practice. In other words, what God requires of Israel is must be practiced through spiritual rituals, spiritual disciplines, spiritual prayer, Torah meditation, synagogue attendance, serving the poor. So Jesus is saying basically, come to me, I will give you rest as a gift, that's salvation. But then come into my spiritual practices and my way of living and come into the rhythms, my unforced rhythms of grace. As Eugene Peterson translates that phrase in the message, come under my unforced rhythms of daily practices, and then you will find rest, you will learn to live in rest, and you will learn to live from rest. And the way to do it is through the spiritual practices that I do, you will learn of me. And so when you are yoked together, you take an old ox who knows how to plow the field, and you take a young ox who's freshly been castrated, <laughs> and you yoke him in with the old ox. Mm. And the young ox pushes and pulls and wants to conquer the world in five days for Jesus. But the old ox says, slow down, slow down, slow down. We're going to do this the whole day. And it's a long obedience in the same direction. We're plowing this field up and down. Mm. So we learn from Jesus how to live my life as he would if he were me. Mm. So I always say, the first thing to start with is work out a daily rhythm of life, then a weekly rhythm, then a monthly rhythm and an annual rhythm of life. And that simply means is look at your day, let's say from Monday to Friday, and just say, how can I carve out time for daily time for prayer and Bible meditation and reading with Jesus? Half an hour a day is probably enough. If you can do more, that's a blessing. But a daily rhythm of being with Jesus as a structured discipline in your life is really important. And then that daily rhythm leads to examining a weekly rhythm of life, whereby you say, when can I worship regularly with God's people? How can I regularly have a time with my family in devotion on a Friday night or something? When weekly do I meet in a smaller group, a home church? So you work out three or four weekly rhythms of engagement and a daily rhythm of engagement. Mm. And then monthly, you say, I need to meet with a spiritual leader once a month to share my journey with Jesus and get direction and guidance and help. Mm. So I years ago, when I first got into in 1985, into more classic Christian spirituality and spiritual formation, I linked up with a spiritual director from the Jesuits. And since then, over years, I've journeyed with different spiritual directors. It's been an enormous enriching experience in my life. Mm. And it doesn't need to be a spiritual director out there, let's say from the Jesuits or somewhere else, but biblically in the New Testament, the elders in the local church should be spiritual fathers and mothers mm. who guide other followers of Jesus in the way of spiritual formation mm. and spiritual growth. Mm. So we should all be living an accountable life that we make ourselves transparent and open in terms of our deep, dark thoughts, 
our inner wrestlings and our rhythm of life that we've chosen and our practice of disciplines to be in the easy yoke of Jesus and to grow and to live in rest, from rest, into the world around us. So I would say practically people, you know, they call it a rule of life or a rhythm of life, daily rhythms, weekly and monthly. And annually, I always encourage people take a weekend or a three, four day retreat once a year or once every six months, the first half of the year and the second half of the year, go to a retreat center. And our good, dear, wonderful friend, Svanhild Shondal from Larvik, took my wife and I last year when we were visiting our son and daughter-in-law and our granddaughter, Abby, we visited them in Oslo. But Svanhild organized for my wife and I to go with her two days to a retreat center in the center of Norway in the mountains, a beautiful, beautiful mm, retreat mm. center. And I, in South Africa, since 1985, have gone on retreats. And I always look for a retreat center near to where I live or where I can go to and have three, four days, preferably at the beginning of the of each year. So I think practically to slow down so that life doesn't live you, you live life. You set a vision of how you're going to live to become more and more like Jesus and to live the unhurried life and to live in the easy yoke of Jesus. Then you make the decision, vision, intention of the will, I'm going to implement it, and then you work out the methods and the means. Mm. So Dallas Willard, I'm actually quoting Dallas Willard. He calls it Vim, V-I-M. And in English, I don't know how it works out in Swedish, but in English it's vision. You develop a vision, then you make up your mind, the intention of the will, and then you work out your practical method of daily spiritual practices, weekly spiritual practices, Mm monthly and annually. And it'll take you a full year. You know, they say with physical exercises that you're going to do physical exercises daily for three months for your body to begin to become oriented to it. Mm. And after six months, it becomes a pattern. Mm. After a year, it becomes a habit and the body starts asking for it. Mm. And if you no longer engage in daily exercise, physical exercise, your body says, hey, I'm going to go for a run. When I'm missing yeah. my run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because a behavioral pattern actually rewires the brain mm. and releases new chemicals. So Dr. Caroline Leaf, her famous thing, the brain is plastic. Mm. And it can actually reform and renew the mind. So spiritual practices build up not only spiritual formation, but body memory mm. and transform our thinking, our emotions, and our health. So it runs very deep. It's very important to learn to live in the easy yoke of Jesus because his burden is light, his yoke is easy. To live these spiritual practices of Jesus is not a heavy burden. We also wanted to touch on another subject today as we have you in the podcast. So it's a little bit longer episode, but we also would love to speak about the topic of, you know, reconciliation. I know it's something that's very close to your heart and out of own experiences, you have seen the importance of reconciliation. So, I mean, if you would like to share a bit about that as well, I would be happy to hear. Okay, John. No, thank you for asking for that. So maybe to just introduce it is 
a story. So when you ask me for stories, here's a, another very important story. Yeah. <laughs> was also equally life-changing for me is that when I worked with John Wimber in 1982 and we were planning the church plant in Johannesburg, the vineyard, the first vineyard, I was already in my journey of consciousness as a white South African born under apartheid in South Africa. Mm. I was aware of my deep conditioning as a white man that was born in a racist country. And I kept saying to John Wimber, if we don't plant a church in Johannesburg that is multiracial, multicultural, with blacks and whites, rich and poor, and we just plant another white suburban middle-class evangelical charismatic church, we mm. will actually be contributing to the pain of our nation and not the healing of our nation. So, But what happened is when we got back, we planted the church in October 1982. And after a year, I looked around me on Sundays when we used to worship, and there were about 200, and we all, 200 people, we all smelt the same, dressed the same, spoke the same. We were all nice, lily-white, suburban, middle-class, evangelical, charismatic Christians mm. having fun with God and each other. <laughs> and I had like a crisis of conscience. I just said, I can't actually do this. Mm. I have to repent mm. and cross the barrier in my society. As a white, I must go to the black. As a middle class, I must mm. go to the poor. I must go to the opposite other because of the deep division and polarization mm. and tension in our society of people who are different to me. As witness to King Jesus, to live out the kingdom of reconciliation. And so I had, a, I had an experience with a young black man who challenged me. He said, have you ever been into Soweto? And I said, I'd never been into Soweto. So Johannesburg, and Soweto are two cities side by side. Johannesburg was founded on the gold rush in 1886 when gold was discovered by the white settlers. The black people came as the labor pool to dig out the gold for the white economy, for the white people. And the labor pool was called Soweto. Southwestern townships, just of black people, and apartheid divided them. The, white, the blacks could not come into the white area unless they had a pass. So I then went with this young black guy from Johannesburg into Soweto for the first time in my life. That was 1983. Hmm. And that began a repentance in me where I felt the Lord say, I must live out a life of repentance and reconciliation for the sake of human dignity and justice because of the history of our country. And I did not realize, John, how deeply conditioned I was being born in South Africa as a white person on the side of privilege and power. Mm. Because just because of my skin was white mm. and my parents were white, I was born into privilege and power. Mm. If I had been born black, I would have been born discriminated again against disadvantaged. So, John, 1983... After one year of planting the vineyard in Johannesburg, <laughs> I began to go into Soweto every single week with this mm. young guy in Petty. And then what happened is that I brought friends from the vineyard in Johannesburg, white friends, and he brought black friends, and we met in Soweto in his house. And that developed into a group that we called Joweto. Johannesburg, Soweto, we renamed the tale of two cities, the narrative <laughs> of Johannesburg, the city of gold, 
the city of white wealth, white power, white arrogance, oppression. And the narrative of Soweto, which is a black city of pain, oppression, rebellion, there was growing revolution and anger Mm. to overthrow the white system. Mm. And God's narrative is not the story of Johannesburg and is not the story of Soweto. God's narrative is a story of the kingdom of reconciliation, justice, Mm. peace, unity, harmony, a a new nation. Mm. So we named our group that was actually a church plant. I We planted a church inadvertently. We never planned to. Mm. But it became about 30 to 40 white people coming in every week into mm. Soweto and about 30 to 40 black people. And we called it Joweto Vineyard, symbolically joining Johannesburg and Soweto into a way of living that was witness to our world mm. that we can cross the divides and the future coming kingdom is around the throne of God, people from every tribe, every language, every nation, worshiping around the throne mm. from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And we are the, the future community of God in the present as witness to a broken and divided society. Mm. So that's been a passion of mine. And mm. I, we lived, my wife and I were involved for 12 years in Soweto. We started home groups that were all mixed home groups, all in Soweto, where the whites had to mm. reverse flow. Everything in our history of apartheid, blacks came to the white houses yep. to work, the white economy, and to empower our lifestyle. So reverse flow was the whites go to the blacks mm. and cross the divide. And so we did home groups during the week in Soweto of blacks and whites, Sunday services. We were given a fall. 100 acres just outside Soweto where we worked together on Saturdays and grew vegetables and fed the poor. Mm. And it became an amazing 12-year journey that has literally transformed me and my wife. So yeah, that's our story. Yeah, and it's so incredible to hear. And I also see like how if we go back to what we spoke about earlier about church planting and why it's important, this is really like an example of how a church planting can transform people's lives and a city and, you know, just this uh, barriers between races. You know, as you say, you don't just go there and, you know, show them your love or whatever, but you actually start living with them. You start to do ministry together. You start to serve the poor together. You start to pray together and really have this community together. And I think it's a beautiful image of that's what I long for as well, to see more of. And I think we have a lot to learn. Maybe in the Scandinavian countries, we haven't had, in a way, as much division, but I would say we have a big division. <laughs> so it's both, it is a big division, but it's on one hand, maybe not. It's a little bit more integrated, maybe it's a little bit more welcoming, but it's still, you know, you have the areas where people live in and it's like, there are barriers and, and obstacles for us to really live in community together. And uh, personally, for me, I think last I've been working a lot with my work and also on a free basis with organizations working with people in in, in suburbs and stuff like that with a little bit, you know, rougher areas. But what I love with doing that is to really see how how we can strengthen each other, how we can come together and actually see that we have different backgrounds, we have different, you know, things we bring, but it strengthens us when we do things together. And I also believe for church to see how can we be, go in the, you know, in the first line of actually making a difference in, in this. Yeah. So, so thank you. Yeah. What would you say, like, if you would like to give some practical, you know, advice 
for people that want to turn their church maybe more into being a multicultural and also a church that serves both the poor and the middle class or rich people? How do we start to do that if we're not there at the moment? I mean, what you say, you go to them. Maybe that's the simple answer. But yeah. Well, John, look, I'm thank you again for the opportunity to share like this, because for me, this is really very important kingdom stuff we're talking about. Mm. And I'm also very aware through my trips to Sweden, Norway, Denmark, I haven't yet been to Finland, but I am aware of the dramatic, dramatic shifts and changes that have taken place over the last few decades mm. and even the last few years. So it's not only all the migration and invasion of all the refugees and migrants into Europe from Africa and the Middle East, the Arabic nations, mm. but it's also the Ukrainian war mm. with five, six million Ukrainians that have left the country. Mm. So God has taken, you know, lily white Sweden and lily white Norway <laughs> and lily white Denmark and is mixing it all up through the pain and trauma of history. Mm. And all of societies are changing and becoming mm. um, diversified and multicultural. Mm. And local church is like an outpost of the kingdom of God. Mm. We are witness in our context to God's future reconciled society, where every tribe, every nation is around the throne of God, reconciled as one united family. So every vineyard, Every local church in the Nordic countries should really seek as a kingdom mandate to cross the barriers now in their society. Anyone who's different to you, who's non-Swedish background, who's different racially, who's different culturally, who's different class-wise, we should be very open as local church and prioritize crossing those barriers, reaching out, bringing the kingdom to them and washing their feet. Mm. And in that way, by by serving, bringing the kingdom, reaching out, mm. we are transformed as local church. Mm. So I studied in my academic studies, I studied missiology under guy David Bosch, who's well-known mm. missiologist. He had a phrase, he said, the degree to which local church engages in its mission of the kingdom, mm. it is transformed into the community of the kingdom. The degree to which local church does not cross barriers and engage in the mission of the kingdom, it becomes a homogenous little club of people who become incestuous. And so, you know, mission transforms us. The local church is changed when it becomes conscious of the migrants, makes food for them, goes down and feeds them, goes and shares the gospel with them, integrates them into a home group. Mm. begins to learn their little language of greeting. Salam mm. alaikum. Mm. And you see their faces light up. Alaikum salam. Mm. Uh, you know, all these little steps. We, I, my wife and I were more changed than transformed by going into Soweto than we helped those people in Soweto. Mm. The mission of the kingdom transforms the one who goes. And so local church becomes truly, each local vineyard should seek to become genuinely multicultural, and multi-class by crossing barriers and reaching out within their context because the pain is just enormous, the pain of the Ukrainians. I mean, John, I was recently, a week ago in Cardiff with a UK vineyard recording a course and they put me up in a hotel and 
three or four of the staff in the hotel were talking Russian and I spoke to him and they said, no, we're Ukrainian. We mm. fled the country. Mm. And this poor elderly woman was cleaning my room in the hotel every day. Mm. And when I spoke to her, I just started to cry. Mm. She, she told me a little bit of a story in broken English, desperate story. Mm. And the pain is just all around us. Mm. And we can no longer just be in our little, um, our little homogenous little group mm. of Swedish church mm. and do it the same old way we've done it all, all along. God is changing the world around us to change us, to become more of an effective witness to the kingdom mm. in preparation for the eternal ages to come, where we will all be together in diversity. Thank you so much. I mean, I would love to have a whole session about this. And I think this is something that's up for us to seek God for and to actually step out and do something about more in the coming time, I hope. And I mean, we have had a great talk today, many good things we've been touching on. And just as a last thing, what do you hope would be a challenge for people in the coming times ahead out of what we have been speaking about today? The, the challenge, John, for me, for all, that, all who are listening to me, is to keep your first love for Jesus by keeping your heart soft and cultivating your heart as a garden for God so that you never lose, your, that, that your love and your passion doesn't grow cold and that you do Christianity and you live life mechanically as a matter of routine. But keep your heart soft. Keep your eyes moist. Keep close to Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then God will transform you and through you begin to change the world around you. The rest will take care of itself. That would be my advice to you. Thank you so much. And with those wise words, we end our conversations today and thank you so much and I hope to see you soon again and speak more because this is really interesting things and really things that are important for our time so thank you again and have a good day and hope to see you soon thank you for listening to today's episode if you want to follow the Vina Nordic movement and everything that is happening you can go to Facebook and Instagram and follow us under Vineyard Nordic You can also help us by subscribing to this podcast on the different podcast platforms. When doing that, you will also get an update every time we have a new episode out. So again, thank you and see you again next time. Bye bye.